1: post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is AI Inside Episode 3, recorded Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. Follow the funding of AI Doom. This episode of AI Inside is made possible by our wonderful patrons at patreon.com slash AI Inside Show. If you like what you hear, hop on over and support us directly. And thank you for making independent podcasting possible. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 3 of AI Inside, a weekly show where we take a look at some of the well the the cascading things happening in the world of artificial intelligence. It's me, Jason Howell, joined as always week after week by Jeff Jarvis. Good to hey, see you, boss. Jeff. Good to see you. Good to see you too. episode three. That must mean that we uh we're like on a roll. That must yeah. mean that we have a process down and we know what we're doing if we're three <laughs> episodes.
2: Jason, down. you are Mr. Process as I learned.
1: <laughs> I try. Oh boy. Sometimes you know what I realize about myself? I can I can follow a process, but creating a process from <laughs> scratch is really challenging. I don't do process at all. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, I got you covered then. Um, Real quick, before we get into the meat of this episode, and we have a great episode coming up for you, I just want to say thank you to everybody who have given us some reviews. We do have some reviews popping up in Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. So if you haven't done that yet and you're liking the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and uh, post a review. We would appreciate it. And then, of course, if you want to support us directly, of course you can. We would not stop you. In fact, we encourage you to do that if you like. Patreon.com slash AI Inside Show. is how you can support this show directly. And uh, you get some perks as well when you do that. So thank you so much for considering. And with that out of the way, uh, I'm going to throw it over to you, Jeff, because you're going to do the
2: introduction today. Uh, So why don't we bring in Nirit. So Nirit Weisblatt is a wonderful scholar and researcher. Uh, who I came across first when she was uh, working on trying to understand when the attitude of of media toward the internet uh, changed, because we all knew it changed, and just trying to figure out what. And she did some wonderful research uh, and came out with a book called Tech Lash. Uh, If you look at it, hardcover is very expensive because it's academic, but paperback and audiobook are more reasonable, and I recommend it highly. And Narit found that there was a moment when media coverage shifted from optimistic to pessimistic or utopian to dystopian, and that was, if I may quote, uh, the election of Donald Trump. And so I've quoted her uh, more than once in books and quote her often and dine out on her findings constantly. And so she does wonderful work on media and technology. And lately, she's become very interested, and I'm glad for this, in the crazy faux philosophies that drive some of the boys of AI. And so uh, I thought it'd be great to have her uh, on this show to talk about that. And so Niri, why don't you talk about how you shifted your attention, not just to AI, but to the uh, crazy philosophies, if I may be so bold as to call them that, uh, that drive some of the AI boys. What drew your attention to that?
0: Yes. So, my research is always about the coverage of emerging technologies. So, with the TechLash, it was mainly uh, social media. And the Backlash was about, you know, the big tech companies. And following uh, the framing of, like, the news about technology, uh, I was, like, amazed but the AI panic that we're seeing uh, starting at 2023—it's um, like we really got. It was like gradually, but then suddenly, AI panic was everywhere, right? We had the open letters, and we had uh, Eliezer Yutkowski saying on Time Magazine, "We need to bomb data centers." Like we have this really, really budget crazy pieces about human extinction, and looking at how it went like from this fringe thing uh, to mainstream and mainstream media, which is what I analyzed, I was just fascinated about how did we get here? <laughs> and this is why I dived into like the ideologies, the funding, and everything's behind it.
2: And so you found that people were claiming doom and gloom uh, with AI. Um, and tried to dig into that, uh, what did you find in terms of, of how that message was spread? Because you're also, I should say, Nirit is a scholar not only of media, but also particularly of public relations and thus messaging. How did you find that message was spreading?
0: Okay, that was fascinating because I'm looking at like um, the framing and the themes. And people started to talk about AI everywhere like this, godlike like AI. Super intelligent AI, out of control AI, Skynet like AI, like all those right. terms. And I, all the science fiction stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and not just AI systems or, you know, yeah. and, um, then I came across, uh, some interesting studies that we can uh, talk about. It's up in my AI panic campaign, uh, two series expose, which you have like companies, AI safety organizations that what they do is do like message testing. About what are the best phrases to freak the hell out of you? Like, what can <laughs> work the best to create this fear mongering within, like, the media and policymaking? And they were really trying, like, to perfect the existential risk messages uh, to target audiences. So they actually checked it's like age group and gender, education, Republican versus Democrat. So it's not like out of the blue. They're actually checking the quality of the messages and the aim is, uh, like twofold. One, how concerned you are, if you succeed in like raising your worries. And second, how are you, uh, how much are you convinced that AI needs strict regulation? We need to pause AI or stop AI.
2: I suppose we should start. Uh, so in, 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 when Jason and I uh, were workshopping this program in the Twit network, we had on, um, uh, Emile Torres, uh, who's a great scholar of, of all this stuff, uh, they and um, Tim Dikebru, uh have done a lot of work and and coined the uh, acronym Tescrial. and I always forget what it all stands for, but transhumanism, uh, extopian, extopianism, uh, something, or effective altruism, and long-termism.
1: Yeah, right? singular- so all of those
2: singularitarianism that's what I forgot, that one. I, forgot <laughs> that one. I always forget about one of the uh, seven dwarves. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so so um they've they've chronicled that and what you've found uh, and, and so so that's the underpinning of this belief by some that uh, uh, we owe the future more than we owe today that uh, if we screw up and destroy today, we've screwed up. Well, so what? We lost today. But tomorrow is what matters, and that's what bothers them. And they think that they uh, should have the money and the power to determine what that tomorrow looks like as technologists and as smart people and as rich people. Um, So, But the doomerism is so confusing to people because it's oftentimes the AI people themselves who are saying, we are so powerful we could destroy the world. And you'd wonder why they'd be doing that. And as you said once, I, I quoted this in my book, um, you know, you said that the, that the um, what was it? That the, the fear is the marketing or something like that. Um, and that they're trying to show how powerful they are. Uh, and some of them, like Yudkowsky are uh, have switched and believes that, oh my God, we'll destroy the world, but still believes in the technology and wants to do it when we're ready. Uh, and so on <laughs> and so forth. So there's a variance on this theme. So you found early on Um, You dug into something which I loved, which was a survey of uh, AI scientists that in the headlines said that they believed that it could destroy us imminently. Uh, Why don't you talk about what that said and how you dug into that?
0: Yeah. So it's the AI impact survey. It's an annual one. It became a ritual every year. We have the same headline about 5% of uh, scientists believe in human extinction. And last year, uh, Professor Melanie Mitchell, which I admire, and I wrote like very detailed criticism of this uh, survey because it has a lot of issues. <laughs> and I can uh, walk you through those issues. Uh, mainly it's like, the question phrasing and the survey itself, the organization behind it, the funding behind it, and all of this, that's actually missing. Because the headline, as you said, Jeff, is human extension. But when you look at the actual question, and I could read it for our listeners, um, it's more like vague than that. So um, the question that we're talking about is what probability do you put on future AI advances causing human extension or similarly permanent or severe disempowerment of the human species okay so first question what <laughs> second what does it even mean like the the disempowerment of the human species <laughs> And like each person that you're gonna Seems ask is like gonna have like a different right. scenario there, like disempowerment of humans, right? Okay, so the second question adds another layer, which is, uh, you need again to speculate about the probability, but now on human inability to control those AI systems and thus causing human extinction or disempowerment of human species. Now, in our criticism last year, Melanie and I wrote among other stuff when is this futuristic scenario going to happen again changes the answer right is it going to be like 50 years 200 years 1000 years million years <laughs> we want to know next and, week <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. maybe so if you ask aleksandr rozkovsky and they added the third question again same phrasing AI system causing extinction or disempowerment of humans uh, within the next 100 years. So at least, like, you know, they listened to criticism and they <laughs> added that. But the same inherent problems are there because the phrasing is still, as I said, very vague. What does it even mean? Can you tell me Do, what does it even mean?
1: Well, Jeff? yeah, that's, that's kind of one of my <laughs> questions. The disempowerment of humans, like, th- there is so much wiggle room within a statement like that. Disempowerment, exactly. how much... To you know, to to what degree, uh, the, how you know, what is the the gravity of this disempowerment? Is you know, the the direct or indirect harm? I mean, there's a million different ways you could go about that. And was it was it their choice to be ambiguous about this? You think, or 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 are they just trying to like, I don't know, capture as much in the net as possible? <laughs>
0: I don't know what went through their mind, but they roll in the same thing every year and it's successful. So why stop?
1: So and it keeps, keeps being them. criticized for this reason? <laughs> no, every yet they year. Still
0: do it? Yeah, every year we have yeah. the same headline. Yep. Uh, right. Human extinction. You won't see any headline saying disempowerment of human species. No, of course not. For a headline, right? Not so, when you're
1: competing with extinction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, so the headlines are extension. Yeah. When the question behind the, this long thing after that, uh, so for them, it's very successful. Um, I understand why they keep doing it. And they keep getting funds to doing it because it's successful. Mm-hmm. So my larger point here is that when you quote AI Impacts, you need to say who they are. And let me tell you who they are. So Katya Grace, who co-founded this place, came from Jeff Jarvis, it will be familiar from you, to uh, Nick Bostrom's mm-hmm. Future of Humane. Institute, And then she moved to MIRI, uh, Machine Intelligence Research Institute at Berkeley, being next to Eliezer Rutkowski, which we mentioned. And she and four other guys are the entire organization of AI Impacts. And they got from effective altruism organizations $2.5 million for this annual survey. Now... <laughs> it's not me saying that it's on their website right you google AI impact you go into their website and they actually say um impact based at the machine intelligent research institute at berkeley california uh currently has three regular staff I i counted five but whatever and their uh funding is clearly out there you can see it's like publicly available data. It's Effective Altruism Fund. It's the Center for Effective Altruism. It's Open Philanthropy. It's the Telling from the um, uh, Survival and Flourishing Fund, Future of Life Institute. And before it's bankrupt, also Sam Backman-Fried, FTX Future Fund, was really enthusiastic about their survey and wanted to fund them. But, <laughs> you know, jail money. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, it's all out there. And if you are a tech reporter and you write, these are the results of the survey, you can add like a sentence or two, who made this survey? Like phrased it so badly and analyzed it and and, pushed and, and created this misrepresentation in the media. There's something behind it, right? Mention hmm. it, please. I mean, I think the readers will appreciate it.
2: So let's talk about, the, about how it was represented in the media because this is, this is what was most striking to me and how you dug into this, you and, you and Melanie both, where the headlines said, as I recall that 50% of AI researchers believe there is at least a 10% chance that humans will become extinct because of their inability to control AI, right? That was the top line, if I'm correct, headline that we saw all over. Half of AI researchers say a 10% chance of doom. But when you dug into the numbers, uh, I've got it in front of me if you don't have it on your head, uh, how many people did the poll go to? How many answered and how many? Can you break that down for us? Do you remember the numbers?
0: Um- Last year, it was 150.
2: Out of how many it was sent to? The one that I have you, it was sent to 4,000 people. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Only 700 responded. This is like two years ago, or the first one perhaps. And then of those who did respond, only a fifth of them answered the extinction question. And then only half of them gave the possibility of extinction percentage merely at 10%. Okay, no so this
0: year they added more uh, AI conferences. So uh-huh. they have like 2,000 uh, respondents out of 3,500, I think. Uh, not specifically this question. This question was answered by like 600 people. Uh, I can look at the numbers. But the point is that also, like you say, AI scientists, uh, the leading AI research believe X. The people who answer those surveys can be undergrads and grad students who sent their articles to this conference, you know, to promote their BA or MA or whatever they're doing, not the leading AI f- researchers of the world. But again, that's another example of something that is like misrepresented.
2: Right. So, so there was, so you put this together before we go to the next stage here, is that there are people who have a self-interest. Nick Bostrom is from uh, Oxford and he's the kind of philosopher king of Tess and these other folks who are very involved in this, they get a lot of money, they do this survey, they want to show how powerful they are and how power should be invested in them because they're the smart ones. So they want to show that, uh-oh, this could be doom. so watch out. If you're not nice to us, we could destroy the earth, but we won't.
0: Right? You know what the funny thing is, Jeff? Mm-hmm. That even in their own results, they're such small percentage is minority, and I put a screenshot on Twitter. So they have this table when they ask, like, overall, looking at future AI system, is it going to be good or bad? And the five options is extremely good, unbalanced, good, neutral, unbalanced, bad, or extremely bad. Now, extremely bad doesn't have to be extension, right? But bad. And it's 5%. Okay, great. Now look at the others. So unbalanced, good, like 30. Okay. And, and if you add everything, like the positive is much like higher numbers than the negative. The headline should be more than 95% are not doomers. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, like that, that's, right. Right. This, right, this yeah. is my read of this thing. Cause even so like true. the 5% that are extremely bad are not doomers, right? Not all of them, I think about the extinction, just things that can go terribly bad. And and yet, it is like, as I said, they are celebrating. It's like, oh, a lot of people are doomers like us. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it fits in with your TechLash uh, uh, research that shows there is an incoming desire to present technology as dangerous and bad. And so taking the smallest amount here and making that the headline. Um, fits that uh, narrative in media and fits the PR strategy of the grail folks.
0: Yeah, and it works because right? people don't remember that it's five percent; they just remember mm-hmm. the headlines of oh, mm-hmm. how many are worried about doom.
1: At the end of the day, it's so you you're saying there's a chance. You know, I don't know if you remember that that reference, but um, really, at the end of the day, like it's so far overblown. Or rather, expanded into this major kind of statement on the health of AI and the, the potential, the impact that it might possibly have. But the numbers, yeah, that's that's a really, it's <laughs> a really interesting graph to take a look at. And I think the question that comes up for me, maybe it has to do with. With the state of, of journalism and where, where we're at with reporting on these things. Like, we, I, I can understand that there are people who, whether they want to admit it or not, you know, fall into the doomer category, the test grail, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then there are the people that re- are reporting on this. Is it that the people that are reporting on this are so afraid of the potential bad things that could happen that that's highlighted? Or is there something else? Or is it just that they know? That reporting on this gets more people to read. Like, I guess I'm trying to f- figure out, like, I-, I feel like this is the responsibility of responsible journalism to point these things out. And yet that doesn't happen. Why is that?
0: Well, there's a saying in journalism uh, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. So, again, you only see headlines about extinction because it's worrisome. Uh, Jeff might say clickbait. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. people want to read those doom things. That's like your instinct. Like as a person, you want to read about it. It's, it's interesting. And so it, you know, drives more readership, but uninformed readership than, mm-hmm. um, let's say like a nuance or a different headline as we uh, suggested. But okay, let's say we pass the headline. Headlines is a different topic. Inside of the articles, like first paragraph, second, something. Put the background, put the context, like just mention when you say, I have three organizations here, AI Impact, Epoch, and Forecasting Research Institute. That was Time Magazine. And we asked all three organizations about um, when might AI outsmart us? Just perhaps mention that those three organizations are existential risk organizations funded by open philanthropy. It's again, publicly available data, and say, oh, the trio got 16 millions to promote existential risk ideology. And then put like the rest of the thousand words about what they have to say. But just give the context. Mm-hmm. That's and the also, favor here.
2: Yeah. And call you or, or Margaret Mitchell <laughs> or Melanie or uh, Timnit Gebru or any of these folks to get some perspective on this. Jason, I, I also, in, in my next book the web we weave coming out this fall in which i quote near it more than once um i posit uh, i'm not a conspiracy theorist but i do think that uh, news people have a perspective that they also don't disclose they have come mm-hmm. to see the internet as competition uh they think that it stole their audience and their attention and their advertisers and their money none of which i buy because it's just simply competition in the world but they are resentful now And the story they want to tell is this internet thing is bad. How many times do you see stories in in, in newspapers these days about how you can turn off your iPhone or how the reporter spent a week without an iPhone and how wonderful that is? um, When in fact, a third of people are giving up news instead. Um, So there is a conflict of interest here, I think, in the media narrative that is willfully painting the internet as nothing but bad. And there's bad on it. Sure, it's a human enterprise. There's good and bad. Um, but I think that's where it goes. And now we're seeing this whole, what's fascinating to me is that I watched Nirit report on that when it came to social media, as she said earlier, but the story is repeating itself, hmm. amplified now. Would you would you say that is the case, Nirit?
0: Yeah, a lot of people pivoted, like think of uh, Tristan Harris. Yes. So they've pivoted from uh, social media is going to ruin society to AI is going to ruin society. Same things, same issues, hmm. <laughs> different technology.
2: Now, that's, um, the building this, you're a scholar of PR. You understand how PR operates. They seem to be doing a pretty good job of using this money well. What's the what's that that behind the scenes structure look like uh, in getting this message across?
0: Yes, I uh, recently call it the well oiled x risk machine, and what's in that machine is a lot a lot of money, uh, which I showed in the AI panic newsletter. Um, so there's this whole ecosystem of, uh, they call themselves AI safety organizations. Uh, they focus on existential risk, human extinction from AI. And they got over the years, uh, half a billion dollars. And some of them are uh, focused on AI policy, uh, regulation. Some of them are about the communication side. Some of them like applied research and what they call AI alignments to align a future AI system with human um interests whatever they may be and uh like it's this whole ecosystem and interestingly as i said they're like um shaping the messaging to what works best so they see let's say what uh stuart russell and all the others wrote in the media they analyze and do surveys and see if it works as i said twofold make you more concerned and more willing to put uh, strict regulation. And uh, it's like, it works. (laughs) We're saying it works uh, uh, perfectly because through the media, it goes like, and and through lobbying, a lot of lobbying, it goes through uh, to, uh, into politicians talking point. So this is where you see the end result of this machine because then Mm. you can see the EU talking about um, AI being as, you know, risky, as pandemics and nuclear weapon, which is like exact copy paste of the center center for AI safety open letter about it. Exact same words. And like the UK and, you know, the AI act that we saw and regulation here, even in the U S are uh, increasingly talking about frontier, you know, models and existential risk and putting those very, very strict things that uh, those, organization advocate for. So you can see in their reports that they send to places like the EU, they need to first like create the fear, which then justify what they're asking for from regulators, from policymakers, please surveil software, please limit GPUs, please criminalize development of AI systems. So it doesn't come out of the blue. It needs to have like this ground of extreme fear of extension for that to be receptive at the end of the right. uh, policymakers. So you can see this chain starting with the messages that we analyze, but then lobbying and actually like, meeting with politicians.
2: Tell us about some of these organizations. You've mentioned them before, but, but one you focused on, I think, is Open Philanthropy. Um, what do you know it's about a, them?
0: by far the biggest one. Uh, so <laughs> they are the biggest funders uh, of this all ecosystem of AI uh, existential risk. They call it AI existential safety again. And they poured more than um, $330 million into it. And this is where it gets tricky because when I'm looking at data sets like openbook.fyi and um, there's this... um, Vipulniak uh, donation list website. The tag of AI safety can show you the amount of money those organizations are getting, like Future of Life Institute, Center for AI Safety, and all these guys. But some of the donations go to, let's say, Future of Life Institute, but the tagline is long-termism or something else. But it's still money that pours into those organizations. So saying that if you like add 1 plus 1 plus 1 equal 3, it's 500 million, it's the modest estimation here. Wow. Okay, because it's much, much bigger than that, but it's right. like different tag like lines, things like that. And someone in the name of, I think I wrote it down here, yes, Brendan McCord published that um, a higher valuation of 883 million. From that, open philanthropy and yes, ventures good. and with effective ventures. There's the, the effective altruism fund and ventures that they also uh, wow. invest a lot. And you have also, uh, as I said, Jan Talens' um, survival and flourishing fund, and you have the long term fund uh, and LTF. So, a lot of funders, and then you have like all these groups that they fund. So, what I love is there's this map. Someone made, and I linked to the guy who made it uh, that maps all the organizations that get money from often philanthropy and the others uh to advance the um x risk ideology and it's um have like like the policy guys, the media guys the ones who' are doing research whatever, and it looks like islands and you know. <laughs> something in the sea and a valley. So it's actual map <laughs> and it's illustrating the islands and the places. And in there you have like the organizations, uh, their logo, a link to the website and one line of description. And when you see that map, and this is why I put it in my newsletter. It's like, open your eyes about like the magnitude <laughs> of this thing that like, just becomes so much bigger now with all this funding and it grows every minute.
2: So one um, – there's a reporter with The Washington Post named Natasha Tiku, and she wrote a story I did not like some time ago when Blake LeMoyne, who was still then at Google, uh, determined that Google's large language model was sentient. You probably all remember that story. and That spread all around very quickly, and I thought that it just took it on credulously and didn't do the kind of reporting we needed, and I didn't like that story. However, Natasha Tiku did another story more recently that I did like. Where she actually quoted uh, Timnit Gebru about how um, the Open Philanthropy Foundation is funding clubs and classes and fellowships for students yes. at Stanford, MIT, Harvard, Georgia Tech, Georgetown, Columbia, NYU, because they're trying to—I'll oh, I'll use loaded language here—brainwash young students. And using these universities, because university—I know, I've one. You want to give me money? Sure, I'll take your money. I'll do this. It all sounds good. It sounds like it's about AI safety. It sounds perfect. But what they're really doing is using these institutions, the schools themselves, and the institutions within them—classes and clubs and so on—and fellowships to spread these doomer ideas, these ex-risk ideas, for the next generation of scientists and leaders, and that. Sobered me a lot, thinking that they, they've got a major strategy here. Um, uh, meanwhile, you did some reporting some time ago on the Existential Risk Observatory. Don't you love these names?
0: Yes.
2: <laughs> that uh, <laughs> how they were testing the messaging. They're using marketing techniques to test the messaging. Do you remember? Can you talk about that for a second?
0: Yes. So I came across one of their studies, and then I went like down the rabbit hole of all the other studies. <laughs> <laughs> It's just because, again, I'm Googling things like God Like AI, and I'm looking for the phrases. So they, um, doing those surveys, as I said, where they test, okay, these are like the narratives and headlines that we uh, success, successfully put in the media. And let's ask people what uh, are their thoughts about it, if they're convinced. So they ask them about their worries before and then after, like uh, every test. And, uh, and then they check what worked, best and some of the things that I found very amusing it was not done by um the observatory but by uh, campaign for AI safety which I call the campaign for AI panic and uh, <laughs> in there there's this guy who uses market research startup that uses AI to do research against AI which I find hilarious and in there he's checking um okay so if I'm saying that it's out of control, is it works better than say that it's super intelligence? And if I like, they really like testing the actual words. And then they analyze, as I said, if it's a uh, female versus man, it's uh, age and Republican versus Democrats, etc. So for me, it was really, uh, as I said, eye opening to see how hard they work on their messages. And then they share it in places like the Effective Altruism Forum. Uh, so all the organizations can read it, learn from it, and you know, implement it in their advocacy later to to policymakers. So that's like the important route that I think people should take with them and understand what's going on.
2: So hmm. I, I'm I'm looking at my manuscript and, and I listed them. The, the, you've talked about a lot of them already, but if you just if you just put the, all these names together, you have the Future of Humanity Institute, which is Bostrom's, the Future of Life Institute. Uh, which was the source of the moratorium letter, the Center for AI Safety, which issued the next letter, the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, which Musk helped fund, the Global Priorities Institute, the Center for Security and Emerging Technologies, the Center for Effective Altruism, and the Forethought Foundation for Global Priorities Research, run by Bostrom's partner at Oxford, William McCaskill. Those ne- it's like they hired a naming company to come up with all those.
0: <laughs> or they, they tried chat GPT. Right, and- <laughs> yeah.
2: They didn't do this work.
0: They
1: knew better than to spend that time doing this work.
0: Please offer 100 variations of AI safety orgs. <laughs> Boom.
1: Yeah, five seconds later. And there what makes me
0: funny is sometimes they're like um, saying our organization, is its entire purpose is to prevent extinction from AI and to make sure... Human species is flourishing among the stars, and I'm like, really? Yeah. (laughs) And then they get 100 million dollars, so I guess you know it works. So. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Apparently, something's working. So I I have a question around all this that that keeps bubbling up for me when we talk about these things, as we have a lot in the last, I'd say, half year, Jeff Jarvis, at least, that the conversations on you know the betas of this show and and uh, this week in Google and everything, as much as we have, is that. There, is like I understand the machinery behind a lot of what we're talking about. You know, is is highly flawed. X risk, uh, effective altruism, the funding that goes into it, all these ide- ideologies that have some sort of a purpose or some sort of a driving point and and a destination in mind in kind of cultivating the fear around artificial intelligence. But if we were to remove all of that entirely and say those things don't exist, yet artificial intelligence still does – I think that there still would be remaining, in some people's minds, some sort of concern about this technology because it's Mm -hmm. the fear of the unknown. It's this thing that they don't know about. It's this thing that's capable of doing something that they didn't think was capable before. And if that's the, the truth, then what does that mean? How can these kinds of concerns be explored in a responsible way? And, and take them seriously without buying Great into something Jason. bigger. You know what I mean? Because, because that fear will exist. It's going to exist. There's too many people on this planet to expect that they're all going to kind of see through these things and, and immediately understand that there is no fear. There, there is no need to be fearful of it or, or risk maybe at the end of the day. But how, how, is the, how do we do that?
0: I don't know if you have the answer. No, (laughs) no, no, listen, you're you're the expert. You take it. So my angle, uh, my smallest niche is the tech journalism part of the puzzle, right? Uh, This is what I'm looking at for the past 20 years. And and as you said, responsible journalism, they need to do the work, and I always lecture about it, um, to put, as you said, okay, if you're going to put an impact, maybe invite Melanie Mitchell to – you know, champ, like give her quote in there. So just balance those fears with other rational experts mm-hmm. and just give room to other voices because those Doomers became media heroes. They were like the stars, like everywhere. <laughs> and they had their time. I get it. People were afraid, as you said, of the capabilities uh, and freaked out. I mean, yeah, it's a jumping capability. We, we can see that it's more capable than we thought. And it created this like snowball of panic, but then you need to have people that we say um, this is what we should expect, and this is maybe the harms that we need to deal right now, and uh, just balance it.
2: Are you getting? Am so, I so naive? I, no. <laughs> um, you're hopeful. Hopeful. Um, mm-hmm. Are you getting? Uh, I've sent reporters to you. I don't know that they end up calling you, uh, and I and I also tell them to, to call. Um, Margaret Mitchell and Emily Bender and Timothy Cabrera and so on. Um, But I so rarely see them quoted. I tend to only see quoted in news coverage the AI boys themselves, the same people who are promulgating this. Have you seen any progress? Are there any tech reporters you think are doing a good job Mm -hmm. of trying to balance this, of trying to dig below the obvious surface of this messaging?
0: Oh, of course. Uh, there is hope. There's always hope. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so there's, uh, Chris, uh, Stalker Walker that is the mm. most, productive tech reporter in the planet. (laughs) He's a freelancer. So he publish every day all over the place. And he's doing a balance work. There's a Sharon Goldman adventure beat that really like examine different angles, uh, like people from the AI community and interview them in a very thoughtful uh, pieces. Uh, Will at wired I can name like there are good AI reporters out there. Definitely. Some of them I interviewed for my next book, by the way.
2: Uh, and tell us about that next book, if you would. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, so as uh, Jeff mentioned, the Tech Lash, uh demonstrated how the reputation of tech industry can rise and then fall. And my point is that it can also happen to the ideologies. And what's interesting to me is the effective altruism and existential risk ideology and how it is like rise to power. We can see it. As you said, academia, media, policymaking, rose to power. But it can fall, and it, I think, will fall. And that will be an interesting story to tell. So, again, maybe it's me optimistic here, (laughs) but I can see a backlash coming, because, as Spider-Man fans know, with great power comes great responsibility. And also with great power and influence, it will be, like, more scrutiny that you're going to face, right? So people now, more and more people realize, like... The magnitude of this movement, the funding, and like the influence campaign that's going on there, operation, you may say. And, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think people will gradually understand what we're dealing with. And there's going to be a backlash. And hopefully... With some reckoning about how we let them be so influential in the first place, (laughs) we're not there, Mm. but it will happen. And book takes time to write, so I'm collecting all the materials (laughs) about the rise, and hopefully by the time the book is out, there's also the fall.
2: That's optimistic.
0: I'm optimistic, girl.
2: (laughs) Do you? Do you? uh, We need to let you go in a minute here, but but let me just um, let me ask you an unfair question. Do you think that the people at OpenAI and uh, anthropic, let's say, which are both involved very much in these ways of thinking, are um, – I don't know how to phrase it. Stupidly good guys or bad guys or, or responsible or irresponsible or um, headed the right direction or the wrong direction.
0: Uh, those are two different companies. Uh, anthropic is uh, heavily uh, inside effectual altruism and, and doomerism all over uh open ai is more complex and nuanced uh, <laughs> yeah, as we saw from yes. the board firing of uh, sam altman and all the drama there um i think at the end if you give like so much power in their hands they're gonna do good things and crazy things and we uh-huh. see <laughs> some of this and some of that. And you need to speak truth to power and hold power to account. And we need to look at them as those powerful systems that are uh, just doing whatever they want and talk about doom because this is what they believe. And we just need to like highlight those stuff, criticize them, look at everything in a critical eye. That's the only thing I'm requesting, I guess.
2: You're asking for journalism, Yeah. <laughs>
0: Journalism school? I don't know. What about I that. <laughs> That's what I do. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's crazy
1: talk. <laughs> asking for journalism. That's let's tamper it down a little bit. No, I think the work that you're doing is is tremendous. And uh I, I didn't mean to the, I didn't mean to ask a question that might might get a little uncomfortable there a little bit earlier. Um, but it, but I think it's important because yeah. you know people you know, people want to know that their their thoughts and their feelings and you know all that when it comes to things they don't understand are being respected. And some people will be afraid of this, regardless of you know how good the journalism is around it. There's
2: not a whole lot we can do about that. I think Jason, that, the word you just used is so important is respect. Is yeah. it's about respecting the public to be able to uh, inform them so they can make their own decisions about how nervous they are or whom they trust or don't sure. trust. But a lot totally. of this coverage it is dumbed down to the extreme of um, not letting people think that they're going to think for themselves about this stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah. if you can hold up my cover of techlish book again, well, well, that's my entire agree. says it's the pendulum swing. So we only ah. have the extremes and not a lot of middle ground, unfortunately.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, you're that doing, is as I, I second Jason, you're doing, you're doing just great work here. And um, I'm ever your fan and follower. Uh, uh, what's your, uh, Dr. Tech Slash is your uh, Twitter handle. Yes. Uh, where do you, what, 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 platform are you using mostly these days for social? Twitter. Still Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Because it's people there. So, so yeah. follow Dr. Techlash. Slash, uh, retweet her great work because it is important to get this message out to other technology people and journalists as well. And I'm really glad That's you do, right. do Nareet.
1: Yeah. Thank you so
0: much. I love you guys. Agreed. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: AIpanic.news is the newsletter as well for people to check out uh, the writing that you're doing around this. Nareet, thank you for uh, spending time with us today. It was great to see you again. My pleasure. We'll certainly have more opportunities in the future to bring you back. So we we'll will see involved. you around the dystopia. <laughs> That's right. We'll try not to get too too deep into the hole of dystopia in the It'll
0: not get extinct by then. Jeff. All
1: right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Take care, narita okay. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Uh excellent stuff. So, Jeff, we got a couple of really interesting uh news items here at the end. And we do. uh yeah, let's uh, let's dive right in here. Um, you actually put this first one in. I hadn't seen this article, but I think this is
2: fascinating. Tell us a little bit about it. So, I mean, I put this in here because Nurit was going to be on. Where what we were talking about in great measure in that whole interview was uh, what young, often drop out, uh, but not always, a white men technologists. Are doing and it's not universal. Let's be clear about it. It's it's a certain number. Uh, Benedict Evans gets mad at me when I talk about this. It's not everybody. It doesn't represent the whole world. Absolutely true. I think what the, what we just talked about does not represent the majority of Silicon Valley. In fact, that's the, near its point. Is that stupid survey showed only a small number buy into this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we got to keep that in mind. But having said that, uh, it is still dominated, as is much of the internet and much of Silicon Valley, by white men. And so uh, Semaphore, uh, our friend Reed Abbergati, uh just did a story about Meta, how they're bucking uh, AI trends, including that of the Boys Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've seen that Jan Lacoon, who I'd love to get on the show at some point, if he's awfully big for us, but he's on uh, my list. Uh, he, he, he rep- he, <laughs> my he moonshot AI list. And, Meta, and uh, he's pushing uh, the gospel of open source around uh, AI. But the other thing that Meta has done, which I didn't fully realize, is how a lot of the leaders of AI at Meta are women. And Mm. thank goodness, that's what we need. The people I quote all the time, who are criticizing um, and and watching and giving accountability to AI, are women. Timnit Gebru, Emily Bender, Margaret Mitchell, uh, Nirit Weissblatt, Uh, and uh, it's not coincidental, folks. And so I think it's really important for Meta to be uh, really thinking about that in its own um, organization. So I was really glad to see that, uh, the, for example, the Fundamental AI Research Lab, which was responsible for LAMA, the open source model, is made up largely of women. Around 60% of its leadership team, read reports, are women. And some reporting chains, according to interviews with people inside the organizations, are female top to bottom. Uh, and you can complain about Meta, you can complain about Zuckerberg, but when people do things right, I think it's worth pointing out and and um, praising that. Absolutely, I completely agree. This is uh,
1: and and I don't know what it says about me that I that I found it surprising to read in relationship with Meta, and maybe that's just because I've 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 been hit over the head over so many years of you know the the kind of narrative that Meta is you know, meta slash Facebook doing all sorts of wrong for everything in this world and technology, blah, blah, blah. But, but I have a, you know, large amount of respect for the fact that this is how they're, you know, driving their AI efforts. You know, they're, they're going the open source route They're you know, where their competitors are really kind of clamping down and controlling so much of their products. Meta seems to be, you know, kind of embracing the open source direction. They're, they're ensuring, obviously, because I don't I, I don't know, maybe maybe it just happened to be this way. But I think that it's important that Meta commits to bringing in these perspectives and the perspectives of, of women. And I think that will I think that will improve their product, you know, just I, I, from the. Absolutely.
2: From, Uh, From the the angle of
1: of bringing in, you know, perspectives that aren't represented in a lot of the other products that are driven
2: largely by males. You know, you make me think, Jason, I I wrote an op-ed in the uh, Star-Ledger and NJ.com here in New Jersey. The um, Bell Labs, uh, which is in Murray Hill, New Jersey, which is an amazing facility, is soon going to be empty because um, Nokia, which now owns it, is moving to new facilities and as you talked Jason, and it made me think that back in the day, Bell Labs did phenomenal work. We wouldn't have the internet without Bell Labs and the work mm-hmm. it's done on uh, Unix and on lasers and on communications networks and chips and so on. But it was owned by AT&T, which we all hated. Everybody hated Ma Bell, right? It was a horrible company in the day, and, and we got a little bit of shot in front of it when it was broken up. But it supported tremendous open research. Hmm. And so, think whatever you will of Meta. They bring in some if they're bringing in smart people to work in this area in a way that is more diverse and open. Then I say that deserves some applause.
1: Absolutely, it certainly deserves yeah to be to have a light shown on it uh, to act. I think as as an example for others who are you know kind of in this space and not doing that. I think right. it's really right. important for the product and um, important for the industry as a whole, not just the product. So that's So speaking great.
2: of good things that Meta is doing, you put another story <laughs> in right now. Yeah. So let's see here if I can present. Not that we're becoming you know purely Meta fans here, but you know we. Uh, no,
1: but you know when, I'm, when, a, when I'm looking for news, I'm, I'm always just kind of waiting for the thing that jumps out at me that I'm like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So this is a kind of a two parter, um, and it has to do with identifying and labeling AI generated content, which seems to be. Kind of picking up steam right now, you know. There's been a lot of talk over over the last year about the need for things like this um, to to make it clearer to people who are online, you know, witnessing uh, in front of them some sort of generated content, Um, you know, to put pieces and to put uh, rules in place. At least when they're adhered to, that's the problem is that, you know, none of them are going to be 100% effective, but at least put them in place enough that maybe it's strange when you don't see something like this. And what am I talking about? Meta is committing um, to detecting and labeling AI-generated content on all of its platforms, so that's Facebook, Instagram, Threads. Um, It had already begun labeling uh, generative AI content that had used Meta's AI, and now the new news is that they're utilizing um, embedded metadata. They're following IPTC and C2PA standards and labeling kind of the provenance around um, digital media that's appearing on those platforms, Um, and this applies specifically to generative AI content that's created outside Of Meta's AI, so that's kind of the new news here, and um, you know, it kind of seems like another another aspect, another avenue where Meta is. I mean, I guess the the rose-tinted goggles uh, view of this would be that Meta is looking at this as a way to get the rest of the industry to kind of buy into the Mm -hmm. practice. I'm sure there are some some real self-serving motivations behind this. <laughs> because Meta has been, you know, dragged out in, in recent years about, you know, in, um about spreading uh you know content that is meant to to misinform and stuff like that. And so maybe this is kind of a reaction, a rebound from that. But I don't see it at all as a as a bad thing. Once again, it's just kind of like okay, I think that there should be more of this. And if a company as large as Meta is willing to kind of make this commitment and we'll see how it plays out over time. But if they're willing to make this commitment publicly and call on others in the industry to do it, like I'm for that. I, th- yeah. I think we need more clarity around this stuff. And uh, if Meta is the one to kind of drive that, that home, then great. Oh, yeah. Let's
2: be clear. It? Um, it's no, it's no panacea. Uh, bad guys will get around it. They'll find right Exactly. Re- totally. Get rid of the, of the metadata or probably uh, fake the metadata. God knows what they'll invent. Uh, people will still get fooled. People can still be stupid uh, and shouldn't give money to people who call them on the phone or put in um, odd things in social media. So it's not going to fix everything, but it is, as you say, it's the right attitude and a right uh, uh, precedent to set, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the other part of this story
1: is um, at least the two that seem to kind of line up together on the same day is that OpenAI is adding this metadata to its Dolly 3 content, um, they're going to have the invisible metadata uh, component kind of behind the scenes and then a visible CR symbol in the top left corner of every image that's generated. And what I'm what I'm interested in is, okay, so if I'm using Dolly 3 and I don't know if you can even see this, let me see if I can zoom in on it. But you can kind of see if you're watching the video version, you can see this little overlay. and I think this is kind of part of it, right? This is the this is the overlay stamp that is meant to be a visual indicator for me as a visitor or as a user of these systems to go, Oh, okay, this was generated. Does this mean that all images I can't on Dolly imagine, 3. Then you're not going to use it and you're going right. to it out. Or people are going to have to crop it out. Yeah. So it's, so it's interesting. I don't know if it's, you know, if this is the solution, what we're looking at right here is all images, you know, once this goes into effect, which I think is still a week away, if I'm not mistaken. Um, if this is what we start to see from all image generators, like, I don't know if that solves the problem. Like, I get it, and I support the need for something like this. But, but I mean, people I are just going to start cropping a, that there stuff was a,
2: There was a, a, a friend of mine uh, in the photography world in New York was, was trying to push something he called Four Corners, which was metadata could be added invisibly to all mm. photos. But what it required to take off was that all browser makers would then yeah. recognize the format so that you could um, – pull it up visibly and right. the odds of making that happen and getting a w3c uh, standard very 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 hard but th- it's pretty much the same maybe maybe that will also push this if all images yeah. were expected to have some uh, metadata of provenance uh, that'd be a good thing all over not just ai everything it'd be a wonderful thing mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. google only recently uh, added in the ability for uh, image search, that you could see the first instance of an image, which would be very helpful for disinformation research and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, I, I, I think that that this will be insufficient in AI. It'll have its problems in AI, but if that pushes a larger discussion about about metadata and provenance, I think that'd be a great thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. Um, I think that's going to be the really big challenge in any of this. Right, is getting everybody to play the same game together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everybody's going to have a really great idea about, you know, how to solve this and everybody probably wants their, their solution to be the best way. So hopefully, you know, this kind of industry kind of collective effort um, to, you know, support the um, was uh, I'm suddenly blanking the C2 PA standards. Oh yes. I'm, I'm um, surprised I didn't just roll off your tongue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. As we said in episode one, we're learning as we go. So every episode is, uh, is a chance to learn the jargon. Yeah, I almost thought about like, like making a book. You know, like, like just a little self reference book that has all these things, so I can flip to it and, and whatever it takes. I suppose uh, this last one, I'm surprised I didn't pick out because I love all the the well, weird the kooky, things about generative talking, AI stuff. I can
2: come up with something and then I say to Jason, "You demonstrate it," because I, I don't, <laughs> I'll, I'll screw it up. So this is one of those. <laughs> Go ahead. Andy.
1: Yeah. No. Well, you you pointed out um, that Google launched image effects and this is through their um what is it called the 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 ai test kitchen that's right right. and um i realized like i i've had uh access to music effects i think this came out i don't know i i can't remember a couple of months ago And i had applied and eventually i got in they also have their text effects which i think on the uh, Twit version of the show, as we were, you know, testing it in Club Twit, I think maybe we played around with this a little bit. The text effect is f- effects is where you can write something and then you can kind of challenge your your output by all these different um modes and everything. So it's so Google's trying to do some really kind of creative things with generative AI. Generative AI is already pretty creative. Google's trying to approach it through a different lens. And so this is actually really interesting. I'm not gonna try and get creative. Um, here And I, I apologize for audio listeners. If you want to check out the video of what we're doing, just go to yellowgoldstudios.com. That'll take you to the YouTube page where this video is posted. But um, they give you in this this field in the interface through the web, kind of a, a sample start. And I'm just going to tab to accept that. Photorealistic woman wearing elaborate earrings, front lit, comma, full body portrait, comma, hyper realistic. And I have the ability to generate an image through image effects based on the prompt that it gave me. I didn't write that off the top of my head. So I went ahead and and hit that, and it's optimizing the prompt. What it does is it calls out these different opportunities to hone and try something. What's funny, this is actually really funny now that I'm looking at it, I used the prompt they gave me, yet down at the bottom it said, this prompt goes against our term of service. (laughs) (laughs) But that was the one that Google gave me, so Google...
2: I don't know. So I know another one that I, I did. Um, uh, older professor with white hair and be beard uh, author photo in front of books.
1: Author photo, comma oops, in front of books. <laughs> and it just comes back with a picture of Jeff Jarvis. No, uh, okay. Well, uh, hit generate, and uh, let's see what it comes up, comes up with. It was pretty fast when I was testing it out earlier, but I can see that it doesn't it's hold on to slow the slow history.
2: Out, okay. So it takes uh, all, the, I, all those opportunities. Number one, let's point out it's it's for white men, a presumed white man. Yes, it did do that. And Absolutely, a man. We didn't. Well, I guess yeah. beard, beard made it. Okay, that's okay. You're you're off on that one. Image FX. Yeah, but it, so now.
1: So now I can go over here and I could change professor to scientist or engineer or student. I could change white hair to red hair. Sure. It gives you kind of this ability to, sure, go a goatee. We'll see what we come up <laughs> with here. Uh, and it'll be film. And we'll go ahead and generate. It gives you kind of like alternatives to play around with your prompt. So, so I think, you know, part of the beauty of this is, you know, prompt engineering or writing prompts is a skill in and of itself it takes practice it takes understanding this is kind of an interesting way to kind of learn how you do it is this what you were looking for jeff this uh Uh,
0: this redhead i don't think
1: so (laughs) (laughs) i don't think so either but anyways it's just kind of an interesting approach uh to yeah well, you know what's it, what, what fascinates uh, yeah, me yeah.
2: about it too, Jason, is besides the fact that the the images are, are 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 neat looking and and that it's a way to teach people how to prompt to make them yes, understand exactly. how you have options here. Last week when we had Sven Stember talau on from Shipstead, um, he told us that, which is an, I thought was a great episode, and uh, and, and for anybody, um, especially in the news business, I recommend watching it highly. You can find it at AI Inside Show. Um, mm-hmm. But Sven said that 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 Shipstead, this 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 media giant in Scandinavia, has already trained 1,000 people on prompting. Mm. And the fact that they a have a training and b are taking all kinds of people through it says that that uh, uh, and Benedict Evans has talked about this lately, whom I quote often. That the thing about ChatGPT is that asking questions is not the normal structure that we have. We don't sit down and say, oh, I've got a bunch of data. Let me query it. We don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. We, we analyze it. We organize it. We do other things. But querying it, prompting it to do something is not a reflexive skill that we have. It might become no. that if we like it so much and we do it so often. But right now, it's not. So that's what fascinated me about this is that is it tries to get you into mind of saying, hello, you have choices. Try some different things. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's interesting because um I remember, you know, the the last year ish since ChatGPT GPT first came out and I was interested in exploring what I was hearing about, but I was reluctant to do it because I was like, "Do I really want to open that can of worms and start to like learn this new language, this new approach?" I'm sure it's not as easy as everybody says it is. And for whatever reason, I drag, I dragged my feet. And what turned me around was a conversation I had with Micah Sargent, who you know is, is at Twit, um, one of one of my hosts at Twit at the time, and um, and he had. Shown me a prompt that he had written with ChatGPT to solve some issue. He was like, "Hey, check out how I'm using ChatGPT to do this thing." I can't even remember what it was. But when I read his prompt, it like suddenly it snapped in my brain that like, "Oh, wait a minute! I should pretend like I'm telling a friend of mine a story about this thing." Or I'm, you know what I mean? Like my thought was that I had to like get in there and learn how to talk to a machine. And instead, I started thinking, <laughs> for better or for worse, about how would I tell a person if I wanted to give a person really precise instructions or uh, insight into what I'm looking for how would I do that and once I started doing that once I was able to kind of reprogram that part of my brain um, I started to get you know I it, it lowered the kind of like intimidation that I had about working with these systems. And it's really come to serve me well over the last year. And so I, I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure there are a lot of people that look at these things and still haven't even checked them out because they're like, ah, just, I don't know, it just feels so new and overwhelming and yeah. like neat, but uh, I don't know where to begin. And, you know, it's just a matter of, of being presented with tools like this where you go, oh, okay, now I kind of get it. I understand what's what's required, at least of this, this AI system. So yeah, I think it's a, a great uh, way to learn learn how to do this thing. That's probably here for
2: the long haul. Yeah. So, and it also says that Google is catching up with image, uh, generative. AI, yeah. Which is interesting too. Yeah. These images do look
1: good. Um, although I'm realizing like, how do I get this thing away? I don't know how to get that thing away. So I've got this image here of, uh, of, a you know, older student with red hair and goatee, blah, 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 blah. blah. All I can do is copy the image. Um, but I want to like open it in a new browser. Is there any way to do that? I don't even know how to do that. So I, yeah, I'll have to button, learn. I'll have to button. play around with it. There's a Is there, Did I miss There's a download button. button? Oh, I guess it's down here. Yeah. Okay. I missed the download button at the very bottom. There we go. Okay. So then I could what open the that. share options it gives you, Jason. And uh, I don't think you can see this because it opened up in a in a window. Um, share options. Let's see here. Share. Uh, oh, I, I see. The download button. I have to share this tab instead. Oh, there sure. we go. Okay. So copy share link. I can remix it. Oh, okay. Um, uh, what does this button do? Okay. There's some interesting aspects to this that I'm going to have to dive into. Uh, copy, share link. This is just copy. It says copied to clipboard. Uh, only users in country. A I T K is available in, uh, will be able to view this. Okay. So if I then go to a new, new tab and paste that in, then it takes me to that image. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting approach. Um, things don't necessarily work the way I'm used to with some other image generators, but you know what? That'll just take a little bit of extra familiarity time. Yeah. I'm not afraid of that. Not anymore. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. This is a, these were some great stories. I'm always happy that we get to kind of talk a little bit about the newsy stuff at the end of the episode, because it's fun to kind of see how things are progressing. Always really enjoy talking with uh, people on the show. So far, we have been blessed with amazing guests. Nareet uh, Weisblad, AI Panic to check out Narit's work, and I'm sure we'll have her back in the future. She is awesome. Um, Jeff, what do you want to? What do you want to leave people with? What do you want to plug?
2: Uh, uh, nothing much. I'm going to be uh, Friday in Scranton at the University of Scranton, the Skimmel Forum, talking about uh, what happens in that town after a hedge fund bought their newspaper. So if you happen to be around Scranton, if you're in the land of Dunder Mifflin uh, and hmm. Joe Biden, so I look at the directions and I, and I get off on Joe Biden Freeway and then on the Biden Street, so you know where you are. You're Oh, Scranton. wow. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. <laughs> so I'm there Friday. So if you happen to be in the neighborhood, uh, look up the Skimmel Forum at uh, uh, the at University of Scranton and come on by. Excellent. And of course,
1: GutenbergParenthesis.com. And my book magazine. Yes. And that's right. Magazine as well uh thank you so much for that jeff and for hanging out this week always good to see you um yeah i mean as for me yellowgoldstudios.com that is a url that will eventually point to my page my website once i have it finished i really have to get some things done on it before it's ready uh but for right now it it points to the youtube page the youtube channel which is where ai inside actually publishes if you want to watch the video version also streams live there um but we do the show usually every Wednesday. We normally record at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. So if you go to that YouTube channel, uh, you can watch it live as uh, many people were in the channel uh, today uh, chatting with us behind the scenes. Um, just search for at Yellow Gold Studios on YouTube or Twitch and you can find that. And then, of course, as far as this show is concerned, Show. That's how you can subscribe. We have the RSS presented there as well as, you know, all the episodes, all the different information that you need there. Support us directly, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, you can do that via Patreon it is uh, patron-supported, and you do get special perks if you do that. So patreon.com slash AI Inside Show, and just search for AI Inside Show on all the major socials. You'll find us there. And uh, very last thing I'll mention is contact at AIinside.show. We are hearing from some of you, and apparently you guys are liking the show. So we appreciate you watching. We appreciate you listening and sticking with us as we continue on with the AI Inside journey It's great to have you on board. We'll see you next time, next week on AI Inside. Bye, everybody.